Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we are uh, going to continue our uh, our little romp through Deuteronomy. I think that um, one of the things I love most about teaching something that I've been teaching for this long um 26 years of active teaching and learning it, of course, more, more than that. Um, I think one of the greatest things is when you continue to find things that you didn't see before or know before. It's, it's what we all love, right? About learning things that we've been exposed to before is seeing something we didn't see before, thinking about it a different way, because then you realize you've changed. Um, but also you realize how sophisticated the, the text is that you're dealing with is if you can continue to study it this long and, Right. And continue to have great minds find things in it. So one of, one of the things I'm really learning about Deuteronomy this time, I learned it well, maybe a decade ago that Deuteronomy has an agenda. The Deuteronomist has an agenda. Micha Goodman, I, I was sneaking to look at the rest of the book to see how much, um, he's going to be able to help me teach you all for the rest of the, the text study. Um, and he has a whole chapter on who wrote Deuteronomy. So I thought, well, let me just glimpse at that because I don't know why, because I was like, why is that chapter in here? We all kind of know when the Deuteronomist lived, when the Deuteronomist was writing, what the agenda was, what was going on. And Micha, like really, he, I haven't read the whole chapter yet, but he he kind of takes some issue with just assuming it's someone writing at the time of King Josiah and writing under, um, you know, kind of this religious reform. And he's like, yeah, there's some evidence for that, but why why don't we take mosaic authorship more seriously since the tradition has? So uh 8th century BCE is Josiah, so the 700s um a scroll is found during the refurbishing of the temple. This scroll, Deuteronomy is found and is authenticated as being really old, right? So, and so they take it to interesting Hulda, the prophetess. And Hulda is the one who verifies that Deuteronomy is in fact an ancient text that has been found. This, this happened, it's recorded that this happened, that it's found then, but it is of odd antiquity it is you know it is very old and Hulda the prophetess authenticates it so but most of us agree uh, who 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 have dug into this scholarship that it is part of a religious reform under King Josiah because of things like things we're going to look at this morning and that's where most of us focus kind of like if you're feeling like oh I I'm on the inside of this conversation. I know it's the Deuteronomist and I know what the agenda is and I know about Josiah and I know about centralization. Like, like you feel like, yeah, like that, that's the inside. Then you get to where it's like, you know, you, you realize you know nothing. So it's like you know, now reading Micha, I'm like, now I feel like this morning we're going to be a little bit on the inside of the inside. Um, and, and, and really talking about a little bit more than um, just kind of the historical context and what's going on. So Deuteronomy has an agenda, whether you believe it's the agenda of Moses or whether you believe it's the Deuteronomist living under the time of King Josiah, there are enough radical changes in Deuteronomy 
from the rest of the texts where we see stuff like Shabbat. We see Shabbat in other places. When we see Shabbat in Deuteronomy, it shows up differently. There are enough changes that it is very clear that Deuteronomy is a religious reform. That is very clear. No one argues. Well, if you author, if you argue for mosaic scholarship, I mean, mosaic authorship, you may argue it's not a reform of what is in the desert. It's a reform for when they get to the land. So even if you accept mosaic authorship, it is, it is a different agenda than the one they've had until now. Moshe's talking about in the future, when you get to the land, you're going to enact all this. So all this is different. They can't do this in the desert. So, so even if it's mosaic authorship that you want to stay with, this is still a reform from what the rest of the books have been doing. Um, if you accept that it's a religious reform later when they're in the land and things are, they've already had challenges and this is an answer to some of those challenges. It is a massive reform of what they would have been doing in the land until now. Okay. So we're going to look at some of those. We're going to look at some through the lens of Micha Goodman of what the Deuteronomist, where are we being shifted? Where is our memory being shifted? And Lisa, Lisa, I want to get to something you said, um, last week. It's been bugging me to the point where I'm not sleeping sometimes because I'm perseverating about it. So remind me, I want to get there um, before we close our time together about memory and about the manipulation of memory. Because you meant you said something and I realized I didn't really fully answer and I want to do that. Okay, so so much to do. Okay, so in your Bibles, you're going to turn to chapter 12 and we're going to look at a little bit. We're going to jump a little bit around. Only in one direction. I lined it all up so that we're only going in one direction. <laughs> um, and I know it's going to feel disjunct, you know, like disconnected. That's okay. Remember, Deuteronomy is a review. Deuteronomy is the second telling of a lot of these things. Deuteronomy is talking about what's already happened and then about some things that they're going to do when they get to the land. What we're going to pay attention to this morning through the lens of Micha Goodman is and and in terms of a reform, is what's different in the way it's being talked about now than how it was talked about in Exodus and Leviticus, okay? Because that's how you know that's how you know what the agenda is. That's how you pay attention to what the agenda is. Is what's what's the change? What got reconstructed? Th- then you know what your agenda is. How was it different? Why might that be? Okay. So Micha's going to make some arguments about why he thinks it's different in Deuteronomy and what the implications of that are. Okay. Only to the site that your God Adonai will choose amidst all your tribes as God's habitation to establish the divine name there. There you are to go. Here is one of the biggest changes of the Deuteronomist. This is centralization of worship chapter 12 verse 5 centralization of worship centralization of sacrifice now where's the only place it can happen the place where god will choose for god's name to be from among all your tribes okay that's where you have to go this doesn't sound like a big deal because we're used to this 
We're used to the temple. We're used to that's where you have to go. We're used to that idea. But this is a major radical change under the Deuteronomist in the land of Israel. Before this, they could sacrifice anywhere at local shrines. Who's going to take care of the business of those sacrifices at the local shrines? The priests. So the priests are living all over the land. They are serving the people wherever they are, eating of what the people are bringing uh, in certain sacrifices, right? Some, some sacrifices only the priests eat. So you have, so you have now, not only do you have Israelites only being able to sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem, what does that mean for your local priests? They're out of a job. How popular do you think that's going to be? What do you do with them? If if the way they make a living is to officiate at sacrifices and they get part of that meat, if that's how they make a living, what are you going to do with the priests in Beersheba? There isn't another job. If the people can't sacrifice, I mean, that, yes, that's a great idea. That would be a great idea. There's no other work for them. If the people can't sacrifice in Beersheba, what are you going to do? Any ideas? Have them move to Jerusalem. So there isn't room for all the priests to come from all over the country to live in Jerusalem. So how do you modify that? (laughs) Build build it and they will come. Build hotels. (laughs) Or send them into the West Bank. Okay. Any other ideas? Get rid of the priests. That's not going to go over. How about shifts? Okay. You take shifts. You go to Jerusalem. Everybody cycles through the temple in Jerusalem and serves in the temple, right? For a while. Okay. But, but you begin to understand. We just read and the place that God will choose God's name to, but okay, fine. The temple. We get it. Like what? Right. But behind those words is a massive social religious shift that is causing some major tension with the priesthood. It's putting them in a much different position. And we're going to hear from Micha what he thinks is going on with that. Why? Why do that? So we're going to see what Micha says. Okay. And there you are to bring your burnt offerings and other sacrifices, your tithes and contributions, your votive and free will offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and flocks. Micha's going to lift up what offerings are not here. Thank God human offerings are not here because you're not supposed to do that. These are all animal offerings, well, except the tithes. Votive and free will offerings are here. Mm-hmm. And the firstlings of your herds and flocks. Up, oh, Bert, he's reading. He's reading. He's looking. He's an- analyzing. <laughs> sin offering is in here. The sin offering. Where's the sin offering? What's the biggest thing you think Israelites are probably going to shul for? <laughs> right? What are they going to make sacrifices for most of the time? The muffins. They're going to shul for the muffins. Okay. It's, it's gotten to that point. Okay. Someone needs to tell Lisa Simon that. Apparently that's, that's the reality we're living with now. Okay. So, okay. So, right. So you would think what's going to happen a lot in people's lives that they're going to want to deal with by sacrifice is sin. Where is it? All right. Micha has a theory. Okay. 
you shall not act at all as we now act here, each of us as we please. This is putting it in the mouth of Moshe. If it's in the mouth, right, the, the Deuteronomist is putting this in the mouth of Moshe. But if you're writing in the 700s, what are you saying? You shall no longer act as we've been acting here in the land of Israel for hundreds of years. Okay. Or I mean, for like a long time, because you have not yet come to the allotted haven that your God is giving you because it's being put in the mouth of Moshe. When you cross the Jordan and settle in the land that your God is allotting to you and God grants you safety from all your enemies around you and you live in security, because this is the issue when you live in security and are wealthy and are comfortable. That's what all of this is about. And argues Micha Goodman, it is all about when you come to the land, you have bested your enemies and you have power. His whole book is suggesting that Deuteronomy is about what to do with power. Thank you, Carol Kleinman. Isn't that relevant? Yes, I think so. That you must bring everything that I command you to the site where your God will choose to establish the divine name in case anyone was confused. Your burnt offerings and other sacrifices, your tithes and contributions, and all the choice votive offerings that you vow to God. Notice what's missing. Again, it's missing. The asham, the chata. The guilt offering, the sin offering, they're not here. And you shall rejoice before your God with your sons and daughters and with your male and sleeve, sleeve ale, and your male and female slaves along with the family of the Levite in your settlements, for he has no territorial allotment amongst you, right? So be sensitive to the Levite because the Levite has no crops. And the Levite is now mostly out of a job. So we get over and over and over. We just read right by it. Be nice to the Levite. Okay, that makes sense. No. Be nice to the Levite because this overhaul is going to displace them from getting a lot of the meat that and the and the portion of the grain offering and the portion of the oil offering and the portion of all the tithing. They're being cut out of that. So be nice to them. Give them. Be generous with them. That's why this is here. Take care not to sacrifice your burnt offerings in any place you like. So we've had it said positively, and we're going to get it said again in the negative. Don't do it like you've been doing it. Okay? But only in the place that God will choose in one of your tribal territories. Huh? I wonder which one it will be. There you shall sacrifice burnt offerings, and there you shall observe all that I enjoin upon you. But whenever you desire, you may slaughter and eat meat in any of your settlements, according to the blessing that God has granted you. The impure and the pure alike may partake of it, as of the gazelle and the deer. What does this mean before this moment? Now you can slaughter and eat meat whenever you want. What does it mean before that? Nope. Before, you can sacrifice anywhere. We're now getting told you can only sacrifice in Jerusalem. So what does this mean about meat before this? You you could only eat sacrificial meat. So whenever y'all hear me say that, here's the proof. I didn't make it up. 
I know I make up a lot of stuff. I did not make that up. Here it is. It's telling us now they can slaughter how whenever they want and eat meat however, whenever they want. That means before this, the only meat you could eat was sacrificial meat. You had to, you could eat meat when you brought a sacrifice to your local shrine and your local priest took care of the technologies right involved in that. So it began with vegetarianism. Before so, well, what it means is they were eating a lot less meat. But I mean, originally, huh. wait, 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 let's, let's be careful about language. Supposed to be. We just know that there was not any idea about killing and eating animals explicitly stated before Noah gets off the boat and offers a sacrifice in thanks. We don't know of any meat eating before that. We are told in Genesis here, you're going to eat of the trees and of the grass of the fields and of all the trees you may eat, just not this one. So we're not told explicitly don't eat animals. To to your point, a lot of people want to argue from that um, that that omission from that silence it suggests the author of genesis the or the sources for genesis envision eden being vegetarian never outside of eden right you know in terms of what's normative from there to there correct it's a movement for sure it is it is movement. I just, I guess what I'm saying is I don't buy that there was ever vegetarianism ever. I think it, that is the vision of Eden. That's the vision of how it should be. That's not the world as it is. Do, do you know, like we eat meat. We really shouldn't, but we do. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and some might call it a devolution. Is there such a word? Devolve. It, look at that. It, 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 it it's a devolution. From the ideal, now we're sliding even further down. You can just kill stuff whenever you want and eat it whenever you want. Okay. So before this, you want a hamburger? No, you have to wait until there's a big enough occasion to slaughter an entire animal as a sacrifice. Then everyone ate. You were eating a meal with God. God was eating with you. The priests are eating your whole your whole clan is eating because you can't freeze that meat. It has to be eaten or salted and preserved, but it, right? You, you can make jerky, but you know, better a steak. Exactly. Better a steak than jerky. So you feed everybody, right? Right. Okay. That's the idea of sacrifice. Okay. There are laws of course. You can't eat all these other things. Of course. If the you still can't eat them. No, but if you still can't eat those other things. The only meat that would be. Uh-huh. Why would there be rules? Meat. Well, first of all, I don't know that that a rabbit was considered meat. I don't know. Rabbit's wrong, but the, the uh, pork. But you, you couldn't eat a cow. You couldn't eat ribeye steak unless you were bringing it as a sacrifice. It, that's probably a better way to say it. You couldn't eat the things that, that you were allowed to eat in the sacrifices. You can't eat them unless it is a sacrifice. And we only know that from here. That now you can't. Now, now you're not going to do that. All right. But you must not partake of the blood, right? You still, you still can't have the blood. Even if you're able to eat the animal that's not sacrificed anymore, you can just kill it and eat it. You still can't eat the blood. You can't eat the life force, right? 
Okay. Um, you may not partake in your settlements of the tithes of your new grain or wine or oil or of the firstings of your herds and flocks or of any of the votive offerings that you vow or of your free will offerings or of your contributions. Those you must consume before your God in the place that your God will choose. You pay attention, says Micha. Pay attention to who's included in that. You, your sons and your daughters, your male and female slaves, and the family of the Levite in your settlements. Happy before your God in all your undertakings. Be sure not to neglect the family of the now unemployed Levite as long as you live in your land. When God enlarges your territory as promised. Okay. Now reading, if you're reading at the time of the Deuteronomist, now that we are as promised, right? Our territory has been enlarged. <laughs> And you say, I shall eat some meat for you. I have the urge to eat meat. You may eat meat whenever you wish. If the place where God has chosen to establish the divine name is too far from you, you may slaughter any of the cattle or sheep that God gives you as I've instructed you. And you may eat to your heart's content in your settlements. Eat it, however, as the gazelle and the deer are eaten. The impure may eat it together with the pure. Why is that a point? Because if you are offering a sacrifice, only people in a state of ritual regularity can eat it. The impure cannot. People who are suffering from corpse contamination or any kind of impurity, if they're menstruating, if they just had a baby, if he had a night emission the night before, you, you are in, until you are ritually pure, you cannot partake of that sanctified meat. So now it's clear that's not true anymore. Now everyone can eat it together the same way you could the other ones that are kosher that you could eat before the gazelle and the deer, which are not sacrifices. Uh, make sure you do not partake of the blood. Right, so we get that again. All right, where, where am I? Did they still know how to get rid of the blood by salting it and draining it? Yeah, so they, they drain it. I don't know about salting. The, Elena Allen is asking, aren't the laws of Kashrut much later? It depends what you mean by the laws of kashrut. We get a lot of the laws from kashrut from Torah. I'm talking mostly about not eating the, the bottom part. of. The That's meat. from the Jacob story. That is why we do not eat that so part of the animal were, unto this day. So even then they were doing that. Correct. There are many that are not here, but that one goes back to the, the Jacob story, right? That because he was injured here, it says in Torah, in Genesis, that's why to this day meaning their day, we do not eat that part of the animal. Verse 12, if a fellow Hebrew, male or female, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall set him free. When you set him free, do not let him go empty-handed. Furnish him out of the flock, threshing floor, and vat with which your God Adonai has blessed you. Vizacharta. And you shall remember, ki eved hayita be'eretz mitraim, that you were an eved, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And your God, Yudhe redeemed you. Therefore, I enjoin this commandment upon you today, the one we just read, right? Okay, jump to 16. Chapter 16, verse 10, or you can just look at the screen, whichever you prefer. So you shall celebrate a chag, a festival. Which one? Shavuot. 
the festival of weeks before Adonai, your God. We have seen this before. The Deuteronomist is not creating this. Moshe is not making this up. Moshe is going over all the things they've been told they're supposed to do when they get to the land. He's reviewing. Now he's review, reviewing the festival calendar. What, what scholars look for is what's the difference in how Moshe's talking about it, how the Deuteronomist is talking about it, and how it's been talked about before. So that's what we're going to look at the text, and then we're going to go to the analysis. Um, you shall observe Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, offering your free will contribution according as your God has blessed you, meaning in accordance with your prophets this year, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. According to your prophets, you're going to offer, once you're harvesting, you're going to offer out of that. If you had a good year, you're going to offer a lot. You're going to offer a lot back. So it's, it's not that everybody has to give the same. It's according to how you've been blessed this year. However, it went for you. That's how you'll decide what to give. And you shall rejoice before Adonai, your God. Who? All the singular references are to you, male, land-owning Israelite. But notice what's happening with all of these things we're getting told in Deuteronomy. Who's supposed to celebrate? You, your son, your daughter, your male slave, your female slave, and who else? The unemployed Levite that is in your gates. That's who's supposed to celebrate, right? At the place where God will choose to establish the divine name. Bear in mind, you were slaves in Egypt and take care to obey these laws. Ah, huh? Memory. Exactly. After the in and which memory is being in, invoked and why is, of course, what where scholars are going to go, where Micha is going to go. After the ingathering from your flat. I, can't, I cannot say these two words together. After the ingathering from the place where your grain is threshed and your vat, you shall hold the feast of booths for seven days. You shall rejoice in your festival. With whom? With your son, your daughter, your male and female slave, and the family of the Levite. Uh-oh. Who else? The stranger, the fatherless, and the widow in your communities. Meaning? Everyone particularly mentioned are the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized. You shall hold a festival for your God seven days in the place that God will choose your crops. uh, For your God will bless all your crops and all your undertakings, and you shall have nothing but joy. We sing this on Sukkot, right? You shall be only happy. Oh, sorry. We sing it on Shavuot three times a year. And we get the festival calendar here of uh, traveling to Jerusalem for, for that. Yes, ma'am. How can I help you? This is the beginning of Jewish family service. I would have to agree. And we got away from it for a while. To your point, Sarah, all of us who grew up, I don't know about you. I know you come from a traditional experience. My grandfather went to shul. My grandmother was home because she was preparing the meal. And the little kids were home because he wasn't going to deal with them. 
He's davening. He's doing the important work of going to shul. He's fulfilling the commandments of the holiday. She's home taking care of everything. She could go in the morning, right? Because everything had been done. My grandmother could go in the morning. But then she had to leave early to come home and get lunch ready for my grandfather and whoever he chose to invite over. To your exact point, how insightful, Sarah, that is not the intention, according to Torah. That was never the intention of the holiday. The festival holidays were times where everybody, including your housekeeper, was supposed to be enjoying and feasting and participating. Beautiful point, Sarah. Thank you so much for that. Okay. So the first thing that we're going to look at from Micha, he believes, Micha Goodman believes this entire talk by Moshe, this entire business of the Deuteronomist is about a sh- an important shift. It is a religious revolution that's happening. It is a religious revival. It is taking ritual out and putting morality in. That is what Micha believes. And so he uses the texts we just read as proof that that is the agenda of, in his mind, Moses. Because Moses knows once they're in the land, once they've conquered the enemy, once they have great fields and crops and they're wealthy, they're going to be in moral peril. Those of us who study that this is happening in the time of Josiah, they believe they are in moral peril. And that a religious revival is the only thing that's going to save them, that they're in big trouble, that they're living in times like we are, where the gap between rich and poor has become untenable. Relationships are fraying. There is not a sense of national unity because the haves and the have nots are in very different places with the agenda, with the national agenda, right? And are reacting very differently and they're coming apart. They're, the whole thing's coming apart and So, uh, and we know it comes apart. It does come apart very soon. I mean, in Israel, it came apart very soon after this. Yes. So, so that's what, that's what's being addressed. Whether you put it in the mind of Moshe or you put it in the mind of someone living in the time of Josiah, it is that power corrupts. And once you are sovereign in your land and you have enough to eat and you have power over other people's, living among you, including the have-nots in your community, you will be in moral peril. And this is to is an agenda to address that. How does Micha see that as being the case? The Ten Commandments begin with an introduction in Exodus, right? What is it? Anochi Adonai. I am Adonai, your God, who did what for you? Brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. Micha says in Exodus, that's how the Ten Commandments begins. God introduces God's self. I hate it that he uses him. What can I do? He's an Israeli, whatever. God introduces God's self to the people as their liberator. This is the only information that the people have about God. God frees slaves, right? When God begins to speak at Revelation, what does God say? Anochi yudhe who freed you from the house of bondage. That is all they know. This is a God 
This is the biggest God. This is the God that beat up Pharaoh God. This is the God that beat the gods of Egypt. So this is the biggest God. And this God, what do we know about this God? God liberates slaves. That is all they know, says Micha. Drop down page 118, the bottom of the page. I'll indicate it for y'all with the cursor. The first of the Ten Commandments is a description of God as a freer of slaves. And one of the first commandments given after Sinai is the injunction to free one's slaves. We just saw that. We just read that. This ethic, this ethic, which is only hinted at in Exodus, top of 119. Look at my highlights and you'll know where we are. This ethic, which is only hinted at in Exodus, is made more explicit in Deuteronomy when Moses reiterates this commandment, right? So right after the Ten Commandments, what's the first thing they're told? You shall let your slaves go every six years, right? We got that already in Exodus. God liberates slaves. You liberate your slaves. Now we get Deuteronomy 15 that we just read. Unlike in Exodus, says Micha, the injunction to emancipate slaves now has a rationale. Because we saw it. The Israelites must emancipate their slaves every seven years because of the liberation from Egypt. The nation that is liberated, that was liberated in the past is commanded to be a liberating nation in the present and the future. The exodus from Egypt is not just a nostalgic memory. It is a historical event that became a commandment. God liberated us from Egypt and we need to be like God and liberate our own slaves. Micha is going to argue that that is what the entire part of Deuteronomy that we just read from all of those chapters, the entire thing is about be like God. Now we're going to get descriptions of God that are different from the ones we got in Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. We're going to get a different description, and then we're going to be told, be like that. It's not completely that it hasn't happened before. It's the emphasis. Freeing your slaves back in Exodus was not connected to Egypt. It is explicitly connected in Deuteronomy. God liberates slaves, so you liberate slaves. All right, so he's going to bring us other things like that. Yes, is there someone at home trying to say something? Oh, Linda Scheibel is going to ask a quick question. We're going to 120, bottom of the page. It's not that big a question, really, but it, the first the one of the first sentences says, "We must emancipate their slaves every." Because that's what we were told in Exodus. Every seven years, there's 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 a release. Why seven? Come on, Shabbat. Like seven's a big number. Seven count seven times seven. Weeks equals Shavuot. Seven times the cycle of seven years is Jubilee. Is Yubah. Seven's a big number for us. It's, it's to create the world. Well, that's right when we said Shabbat. Uh, so question, comment. So are, are we supposed to be on the sliding scale here too? If we're supposed to be like God and liberate slaves, why are we even having for six years? Uh, 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 no, no, no. Now you're going a different place. Also, are you suggesting that that basically this is a demarcation between the the God that we had that was vengeful and jealous is no more. And now we're supposed to look at a God that is a liberator of slaves. This is a completely different concept of God. No, it is not. No. The same God that took us out of Egypt will smack us in the head if we keep messing up. 
They're not different gods. I mean, this, the God that we saw earlier in Exodus, or not even Exodus, earlier, um, is, is really an almost childlike, jealous God. So that is a characterization. I, I could argue that with you, but we don't have time this morning. I would, I would argue that with you, that, that there is a very complicated view. I will give you that. There is a multifaceted, complicated view of God and God's relationship with us in the other books. Deuteronomy is written by already a different theological school. Already by the time of the Deuteronomist, and Micha argues, God doesn't live in the temple. God's presence isn't in the, like, what are you talking about? God is up there. Like, God is in God's heavens. And, we, and you know, we do what we do down here, but it doesn't impact God at all. God is more removed. Also, by the way, in Leviticus, we don't get a personal God in Leviticus ever. We don't get descriptions of God getting angry. A fire goes forth because somebody screwed up the ritual and tinkered with the wires. Well, will you tinker with the wires and there's going to be an explosion? That's just how things work. I'm going to say it's not inconsistent with the God we have seen represented in Exodus. It is a it is the evolution of the concept in that we no longer have God impacted by human behavior. God simply describes what's the natural consequences if y'all keep screwing up. And the natural consequences are that you will be exiled. The land will spit you out. But that's not God getting mad. Correct. Right. Exactly. All right. So the relationship has changed. The relationship has changed. The focus now is on, right? God is the liberator. You shall therefore liberate. And we're, and we're going to see more. We're going to see more. Micha is going to bring more. All right. The commandment to remember Egyptian bondage, bottom of page 120. The commandment to remember Egyptian bondage appears nine times in Deuteronomy and four times in the entire rest of the Torah. This commandment is almost always juxtaposed with the injunction to be sensitive to slaves, strangers, and anyone who is in a position of weakness. You too must love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. This verse actually contains two charges. First, do not be like Egypt. Sorry, top of, it's over here, people at home. This verse actually uh, contains two charges. First, do not be like Egypt. And second, be like the God who liberated you from Egypt. So there's two things. Not just are you supposed to be like God the liberator, but there's something you're supposed to not be like. And who's that? The overlords. Do not relate to power the way the Egyptians related to power. And go further. You are to not only not relate to power the way they did, making it abusive and, and oppressive and horrible. Also, you are supposed to liberate out of your sense of power. Okay. So now he's going to look at Shabbat. This is how the commandment appears in Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do your work on the seventh day Shabbat for Adonai. You shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male or female slave, your cattle, or the stranger who's within your settlements, right? That's how it's talked about in Exodus. In Exodus, God's week heralds humanity's week. Right. Humanity is commanded to live a creative and productive life six days a week and to rest on the seventh day, just like God. 
But that is not how Moses presents the commandment in Deuteronomy. When he reiterates the fourth commandment, he speaks a very different kind of Shabbat. How does Moshe talk about it in Deuteronomy? Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, it's a Shabbat to Adonai, same as Exodus. You shall not do any work, nobody, just like in Exodus, right? Uh, 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 But look what happens. Remember, we are on page 122, top of the page. Remember, guess what's coming? That you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the, and Adonai, your God, freed you from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yudhe your God, has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. In Deuteronomy, argues Micha, the commandment of the Shabbat is incumbent upon the master who is charged to free his slaves from all labor on that day so that they may rest as he does. In Exodus, the commandment was to rest. In Deuteronomy, the commandment includes the injunction to let others rest, meaning because you have the power to control their rest. Yes, you control their work. But what is Deuteronomy saying? You also have the power to control their access to rest. And you who were redeemed from slavery are to be like God and you are to allow your slaves as you're being like God to be like you. This is not a populist movement. There are slaves. This is a movement to say when you have control of other people's labor, be sure you are engaging with that power in a way that gives them the same rights to rest every seventh day that you have. It strikes me this is a populist movement because if you are a downtrodden person and you look at this, you're going, yeah, I'm going to vote for these guys because they are freeing me because they keep, I, I, everyone is reminded that we were slaves and we're all now free. You know, even, even the peasants and the slaves, you know, we get to eat meat now where we did before. Um, we get to be, you know, we, we get a Shabbat. So we get a bunch of stuff we didn't get before. I'm going to vote for these guys. Okay. Let's be clear. There's no voting. Metaphorically, whoever support these but, guys. But do you understand my point? The point is directed at the people in the royal court. This is directed to the royal court. This is directed to the nobility. This is directed to the wealthy. This is directed to the people who make the decisions. There is no vote. So I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you that it's not, that it's not probably popular. These reforms would be popular among the people, but let's be clear about who it's directed to. It's directed to the wealthy. It's directed to those of us who control the resources and the flow of resources, who have social power. That is who Deuteronomy's worried about, not the oppressed, not the poor. I mean, I, I, I miss said that. That's not their focus. Deuteronomy's focus is not the poor. The poor are always going to be poor and not have power. That's just how it's always going to be, accepts the Deuteronomist. And there's always going to be slavery. That's just how it is. However, like y'all who have power, that's who Deuteronomy's worried about. Micha says that's who Moses is worried about. The folks in the desert whose descendants are going to be wealthy and have power over other people. 
And that's who Moshe, that's who the Deuteronomist is concerned about because he's concerned that they will be tempted to do what we all do, which is exploit people. And in this case, their labor, exploit them so that you can get more and forget about where it came from and forget about collapsing all hierarchy one day out of seven. There's a moral obligation because if not, there will be moral rot and decay. And that can only result in one thing, a failure of the whole project. P.S. That's exactly what happened. The whole project failed. The whole thing. George? Yes. And Micha would say if he was teaching us Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> That's where you leave them? Like, go ahead. The, the freedom from Egypt, which is in memory, was given up not for freedom, but for a new set of rules, which we consider much more moral. Uh, but still, there's a set of rules, and the concept of freedom disappears, I think. And, and the power... It's just not as important. I think is that when, when people uh, in power lose sight of the goal of people and become addicted to power, everything else disappears. 100%, George. Well said. Well said. That's exactly what Moses or the Deuteronomist, however you want to think about it, that's the concern. Lest you become addicted to power, you shall let your slaves over whom you have control rest like you, collapsing all hierarchy one day, every one day out of seven, right? As a corrective, don't you forget you were a slave too, Mr. Busy, right? Yes, Sarah. How did our people in the South who were plantation owners interpret this to be able to not free their slaves? Okay, so outside of the land of Israel, freeing the slaves, outside the land of Israel, none of this holds. Nobody's freeing their slaves in Georgia every seven years. I don't have power in Georgia as a Jew. I may have have power over people. Well, then I, you know, I need to treat them with compassion and I need, right? But I'm not in Israel. I'm not a Jew in Israel. I can't, it's a whole different ball game. Ethically, morally, slavery existed in the Bible. According to Jews living in the South during slavery, it's in the Bible. Of course there's slavery. Duh. Right? For them, it's right here. But we're not living in the land of Israel where everyone frees their slaves every seven years. That's how they rationalize it. Hopefully also they took the lessons and said, and be careful how you treat your slaves. They are not chattel. They are people. Torah never lost sight of that. Right? None of this three-eighths, five-eighths, so, you know, like, and being, right? Like, they're people. They were freed the same way you were. You know, for, anyway. So in terms uh, of uh, political position in the society, who was the Deuteronomist? Because <laughs> what the Deuteronomist is is saying in essence is if you're not careful and mitigate your power in this way, there'll be a revolution and we'll lose all power. So the Deuteronomist is someone who cares very much for his country and cares very much for the corruption 
that they, it's probably not a he, it's a they. The corruption they see happening everywhere and is trying to, this school of thought is trying to institute social reforms the same way we look to people who are wealthy and connected and have power in our country who are leading the charge for greater greater equality. Is it reasonable to assume the Deuteronomist is a member of the ruling class? It is probably from the prophetic school. You know, so folks who have enough cachet to be connected and listened to, who's important that listened to D, the D source? Who is it? Who's important that listened to this? Josiah, the king, the king bought it. The king was inspired by this religious reform saying we need to get this project back on track. And then, you know, ex- accepts the scroll as legitimate, right? Yes, exactly. But probably, I mean, we've had leaders who had power who did remarkable things, right? For the world and for people and for the downtrodden. Um, so yeah. Okay. <laughs> Since Abraham Lincoln. All right. Uh, FDR. I mean, you know, think about people who had a lot of power, who chose to use that power to try and expand rights and to expand access and to expand you know, all boats rise. I mean, that kind of philosophy is not new. That's not a new philosophy. And that if y'all don't pay attention to that, it's you who are going to be corrupt. It's you. It's you who's going to now be a, a less than good person. So the new social focus, I'll, I'll go quickly over that what he's, what Micha is suggesting is in the, all this business about sacrifice, where we saw what's not included. What's not included are the sacrifices of the sin, the guilt offering, all those offerings. Guess who eats those offerings? The opposite. The person who brings it. So what's Micha arguing that the Deuteronomist is doing? completely downplaying the sacrifices that only the person ate and their immediate family and lifts up the sacrifices that everybody eats, right? A social focus, a focus on feeding your male and female slave, the family of the Levite. We saw in one place, the stranger, the widow, the orphan, those are the sacrifices you're supposed to pay attention to. The other ones aren't even mentions they kind of don't exist they're not important who what are the festivals about that's the other thing he he brings forward look on page 126 deuteronomy offers a novel interpretation of shavuot if you compare it to leviticus right then what we got from the text that we just read bottom of 126 here the holy place is less of a site for encountering the divine and more of a site for encountering other people, especially the weak and the needy. Shabbat, too, is not just a time of imitating God's creativity and rest, but also a time from desisting from dominance. The moral reconceptualization, top of the next page, the moral reconceptualization of Shabbat and of the tabernacle, right, the temple paves the way to understanding a revolutionary theological process, the moral reconceptualization of God. The shift in emphasis from ritual to religion 
springs from a new understanding of God. Lisa, to your point, the evolution and the thought about God results in a shift from ritual to religion, right? Okay. Um, and I want to, I want to get to the closing chunk. We'll conclude. The book of Exodus itself does not present God as a role model. Again, to your point, Lisa, God's attributes are described, but the commandment to imitate God is never explicitly stated, stated in Exodus. In Deuteronomy, though, this charge is rendered clearly. Slaves must be freed from work on Shabbat because God freed Israel from Egypt. And human beings must love the stranger because God loves the stranger. In order to draw closer to God, one must draw closer to other people. In order to be divine, one must be moral. The book of Deuteronomy forbids any representation of God. But Deuteronomy offers another way to make God manifest, namely by adopting moral qualities that resemble the divine attributes. God resides in the heavens, but human beings can bring God down to earth. Not by means of ritual, says the Deuteronomist, argued by Micha, but by means of moral conduct. The distance between God and humanity cannot be bridged by means of religious ritual, but it can be bridged by means of social action. Social action is therefore a religious activity. Page 130, God is sanctified not my, by means of sacred rites, but my means of righteous acts. There is a notion that religion differs from ethics because religion deals with the relationship between humanity and God, whereas ethics deals with the relationship between fellow people. But Moses and the prophets of Israel, and the, I would say the Deuteronomist, repudiate this dichotomy, instead integrating religion and ethics. This is the religious reform of Deuteronomy. This became, I would argue, as we've seen with the holiness code, the pressure of the prophets on the, you know, the writings of the priests. This became Jewish religion. This is what, this is the birth, in a sense, of Jewish religion, that it's a, that religious behavior is moral behavior. It is no longer you do this right and that right and you pour out this and you measure that and you bring it here and you do it there and you say that right. It's not the technologies, it's how you behave. And the kind of society, therefore, that you build, this becomes the Jewish, I believe, the Jewish way of looking at how we are religious people. What you do in shul, terrific. That you fulfill this and you fulfill that and you keep kosher and you don't buy this brand and you buy that. Terrific. You have two sets of dishes, mazel tov. The real way Jews are religious people, I would argue this is suggesting, is, yes, so you have two sets of dishes. Who are you inviting over to eat on them? Yeah, you only buy that brand that's the super, super, super kosher brand. Who are you going to give half of it to? Right? That becomes, yeah, you're moral in your business dealings. Terrific. How much of your earnings do you give away to the poor? Right. And, and I believe this, this has inspired us as a people for a very long time. This reform, this reconstruction, right? From the four books to the fifth, I believe continues, I hope to inspire us. 
You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.